Hey, it gives me great pleasure to say, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation. Yeah, all right. Now, don't get too excited. We're not getting into the hellfire and brimstone stuff tonight, all right? But we are starting a series I'm very excited about, and uh, we're going to be looking at uh, something uh, very practical for the church. The book of Revelation deals with much more than just what happens in the last days. Uh, the name of the book comes from the Greek apocalypsis, which means unveiling. And it is the unveiling, this book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And he comes first, he reveals himself to the apostle John. And John is living on an island. He has been exiled to the island of Patmos by the, the Roman emperor Domitian. He is sentenced John to Patmos. I have been to this island. It is a rock in the middle of the Aegean Sea. And John has been sentenced here, and he's sentenced to hard labor, and he's the last man standing, all right? He is uh, one of the fine, he is the last apostle. Peter has been, at this point, crucified upside down. Paul has been beheaded. Uh, Thomas has been run through with spears. They tried to kill John, but they could not kill him. They put him in boiling oil, and God wasn't done with him, and he survived. He just comes back like a phoenix. And here he is, and he's on this island, and he's older than dirt at this point. And Jesus appears to John, and he uh, dictates to this old wizened apostle a series of letters. And if you could skip back to chapter 1, we've got it on the screen, Revelation 1.19. This is what the risen Christ who appears to John says, he says, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And that line right there, if we were doing a study of Revelation, uh, that would be the way we would divide up the whole book, you see. Uh, the things that you have seen. And that's the first section of the book of Revelation. That's going to cover verses 1 through 19 in chapter 1. And that just refers to uh, this, this initial encounter with the risen Christ between John and Jesus. The things that you have seen. You're going to write this down. And then the things that are. That's the time that John is living in. That is including also the church age. All right, and that's going to cover chapters 2 through 3, and that's really what our series is going to cover, this seven churches series. And then the things that will be after this is really what, what the rest of the book of Revelation has to deal with, and that's what we think of when we think of Revelation. When I said turn to Revelation, that's the part that you thought about, all that end times, last days stuff that we all find fascinating. And don't worry, we'll get to all that at some point just not in this series, okay? But this series is a very exciting, very uh, beneficial series to the church because he's gonna write some letters to seven churches at the command of Christ. And these churches happen to be real life, actual, literal churches in John's day. But these letters contain some things that are practical and beneficial because this is a prophetic book. Uh, it speaks to churches uh, from across time. From John's day all the way to our day. And we're going to benefit from all of these letters. And these letters carry affirmation. And they carry encouragement. And they carry instruction. And they carry warning. And we're going to benefit from all of it. You might be wondering why in a book of prophecy do you have seven letters to seven churches? What's that all about? Why does Revelation begin with seven letters to seven churches? Well, these churches existed in a place called Asia Minor. 
And Asia Minor had become the predominant area in John's day for the expansion of the gospel. And there were seven prominent churches in Asia Minor uh, by about 90 AD, which is when this book is being written here. And Jesus instructs John to write to these very churches. And as he does so, he's very straightforward. What he is saying in these letters gives us uh, what he's looking for in his church. This is what he's looking for. Every letter, every church is a snapshot. It's a soundbite uh, of church life. Uh, two of these churches are going to get uh, rebukes with no condemnations. Two of these churches are going to get condemnations with no rebukes. And then five of them, or the rest of them, are going to get uh, 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 one of each, okay? And so we're going to read these letters. We're going to hear Jesus say, I love this and I love that. And then he's going to say, and I hate this and I hate that. And that's going to be beneficial for us because it's the big picture of God's view of a church, what he's looking for, what he's not looking for. And another reason that we see this in a book of prophecy there are seven churches. I was talking with someone right before this service tonight about the number seven and its importance in Scripture and uh, how seven, you see it all throughout the Bible. Seven is God's number. It's the number of completion. In Revelation, you're going to see seven trumpet judgments. You're going to see seven bowl judgments. You're going to see a scroll with seven seals on it, okay? And here we've got seven churches. And there is a position taken by many scholars, and I happen to share this position, that these seven churches, although they are real, although they actually existed in John's day, that they are prophetic of the flow of church history. For the next 2,000 years, from John's day all the way up to now, these seven churches are representative of successive eras in church history. And I want to show you on this screen here, I'm just going to break it down, give you a little overview of this series, the different churches. We're going to look at one a week, all right? Tonight, we're going to look at Ephesus. And Ephesus is the forgetful church, all right? This church, uh, it was a church, it had sound doctrine, it had sound philosophy, it had good morals, but it began to lose its passion. And that is exactly what happened in the first century. The early church, it was strong until it wasn't. And it began to wane in its fire. And then we're going to look at Smyrna. Smyrna was the second uh, church that Christ wrote a letter to. It was the persecuted church. And in church history, uh, under Rome, the church uh, after that first century, it began to be highly persecuted. After it lost its fire, it underwent a lot of persecution. That actually purified the church. And then we're going to look at Pergamum. And Pergamum is the compromising church uh, it was a church that started to synthesize its beliefs with the world. And that's really reminiscent of what happened to the church during the Middle Ages. It began to look like the world. Christianity began to be tolerated. You came out of an era of persecution, and then you had uh, the Roman Emperor Constantine, and he said, you know, Jesus is just all right with me. And he said, we're going to make Christianity the state religion. Everybody's going to be a Christian. And so there was immense toleration after persecution. Now, everybody was Christian. That's the worst thing that can happen. Toleration is the worst thing that can happen to a church because everybody wasn't really a Christian. They just wore a label. And it was tolerated. And it made the church weak and watered down. And that's Pergamum. And then we're going to look at Thyatira. Thyatira is the idolatrous church. And this is a, a church that abandoned 
sound doctrine and they embraced heresy. That would happen in church history. In the Middle Ages, that's exactly what happened. The church became deeply heretical and embraced uh, teaching rife with error. Then we're going to look at a place called Sardis. And Sardis is the sleeping church. And this is a church that looks alive, but it's actually dead. We got any of those today? We actually do, don't we? We always joke about churches like that, that uh, you know, they're going to go to heaven first at the rapture because the dead in Christ will rise first. <laughs> you know. Uh, but uh, this is reminiscent of, of the era of the Reformation. You know, the Reformation was a marvelous event. It was necessary to bring in, uh, you know, to overcome the errors of the Church of Rome. Uh, and yet, though it indicated life, there were a lot of state churches that emerged. And so they looked healthy doctrinally, but they were dead. And then we're going to look at a great church, and it's the Church of Philadelphia. And that is the persevering church, the church of brotherly love. Christ is going to say they've endured, they have promoted the gospel, and that's just like the era of the 1600s through the 1800s where you had a wealth of of, of spiritual awakenings and religious revivals. And then finally, we're going to wrap it up with the seventh church, and it's called Laodicea. Laodicea, and this is the lukewarm church. And this is the final church. Laodicea means the people rule. That's not a good thing. And Revelation 3, verse 20, uh, Jesus says this about Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You guys remember a picture? Maybe you saw it as a child of Jesus knocking on a door. Remember that? And people remarked that there's no doorknob on the outside of the door. They thought it was a mistake. And the artist said, the doorknob is on the inside. But they're not opening the door. He knocks, and they will not open because they are self-sufficient. They're fine. They don't need anything. They've got it. And Christ says, you're lukewarm. I want to spew you out of my mouth. And I read that, and I read these letters. I get goosebumps when I read these because if these really are indicative of all of the ages of church history, we're in that last age, aren't we? We are in the Laodicea. We're not Smyrna. We're not persecuted. We are in the lukewarm age of the church. And so that means this is the last age. This is the last phase of church history. There's no eighth church. This is us right here. And so we can learn from all of these. We can learn from Ephesus, as we will see tonight, from Smyrna and and Philadelphia and all of them, and even Laodicea, because that one mirrors us. But this is going to be a tremendous little journey, and I'm looking forward to taking it with you. Would you bow with me before we dive in here? Heavenly Father, I just ask your blessing upon our time and your word, God, as we read this marvelous book, Revelation, a book that carries a promise. You say in the very beginning that whoever reads this book, there's a blessing. Blessed is he who reads this book. I don't know of any other book that has a promise like that. And so may we be blessed as we open these pages and study these letters that have uh, merit, that have uh, instruction, not just for the churches of that day, but for us as well. And I pray that we can apply that in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to look first at Ephesus. And this is the classic first century church. Paul spent three years in this church right here. Uh, When he left this church, he put his key man in there, a guy named Timothy, young guy, young whippersnapper, came in to pastor this church that Paul loved, Timothy. And, uh, you know, in in the book of Acts, whenever a church is formed, it gets about a paragraph of real estate. Ephesus 
gets chapter 18, 19, and 20 of the book of Acts. There is more real estate devoted to Ephesus than any other church that Paul was affiliated with. You know how many books in your Bible are tied to Ephesus, tied to this church right here? Eight. Did you know that? Eight. You, you knew about Ephesians. We went through Ephesians, and I love that study. So naturally, Ephesians deals with this church, but uh, uh, First and Second Timothy, that's written to Paul's uh, protege, who is the pastor of this church. And then uh, uh, John finished his ministry in Ephesus. When we visited, my wife and I visited Ephesus, we learned that that's where John finished his ministry, long before he ended up on Patmos, okay? And so he was there in Ephesus. And so his, his uh, books of the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, all written and addressed first to that church there at Ephesus. And of course, the one he wrote on Patmos would be Revelation. And that went first to Ephesus as well. So that's eight books written to or around or about this church. And here's how Christ's letter to Ephesus begins. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. And this is, this is really how all these letters are going to begin. It's going to say, to the angel of the church at dot, 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 right, okay? To the angel. What does that mean? Now, we know what an angel is, okay? We've read the New Testament. We know that an angel is a spiritual being, a heavenly being. But you know the word for angel is angelos, and it simply means messenger, all right? It does not have to mean uh, an angelic, you know, spiritual being, with the wings and the light and all that. Uh, it's someone who carries a message. That's what it means. And so this is referring to the one who is tasked with bringing a message to the church at Ephesus. Who, what's the name for the person that brings a message to the church? Who's bringing the message to the church tonight? What has two thumbs and is bringing a message to this church tonight? This guy, all right? So what am I? I'm a pastor. And so the angelos, the angel of the church, is the pastor of the church. And so when anybody asks you, how's that new pastor at Lamb's Chapel doing? You can say, he's an absolute angel. <laughs> all right? I just want you to be biblically correct, okay? And so that's, that's what this is referring to. Now, the interesting thing about an angel, is that an, what is an angel's job? Is it to come and, and, and share whatever's on his mind? No, an angel comes to bring the message that is given him by God. An angel doesn't just show up and say, you know, here's what I think about this. No, he's delivering what the Lord has said. My job is not to just empty the contents of my noggin for your enjoyment. That wouldn't take very long, first of all. Okay, and so uh, that is why I like to teach verse by verse. People are like, how come you teach verse by verse? It's so I don't run the risk of just telling you what I think, because I'm not inerrant, but God's word is, and so we want to hear from the Lord. And so there's a very important stewardship that a pastor is tasked with. The angel of a church must share what, what is the message of the Lord, and we find that, of course, in His word. And so He's writing. Christ is writing through John to these angels at these churches. That would be the Timothys, the Tituses, the Epaphrases, the Epaphroditus's, the, the, the Philemons, the apostolic delegates who carry the word of Christ. And he says, here's what I want you to write. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. That's, that's Christ. 
You write the words of the one who holds the seven stars. How many churches? Seven churches. There's an angel at each church, and he says, I hold the seven stars, and, and that's what these pastors are as well. They are stars. What are stars? A star is uh, a source of light in the dark. We have stars in the night sky. We see them. They are, they are bright. They twinkle, and then the sun comes up, and you don't see them anymore. Where do they go? Well, they're still there. You just don't see them because the greater light is present. That's the sun. What does the sun represent? That represents Christ. And so when Christ departs, what comes out? The stars and what else? The moon. The moon rises. That, that represents the church, see? And the moon is bright. So we've got darkness in the absence of the sun. The sun has departed, and now you still have light in the absence. But what makes the moon so bright? It reflects the light of the sun. And so it's just like when Jesus departed, the church rose. The church came into being. And so God, just like when the, the earth turns and there is darkness, he has provided light in the absence after Christ left the earth. There is a light in the form of the church and those who lead it. And so we see a design here as we begin. In your notes, there's a design for this church. It's to be a light. That's the purpose of the church. You're to be a light. You're not to blend in. You're not to join in the dark. You're to be a light in the dark. And it's Christ who holds the light in his hands. He's the head of the church. And this verse goes on. It says that he is the one who walks among the, the seven golden lampstands. Angels, stars, lampstands. What do those have in common? Light, okay? They all involve light. That's what we are to be. You are the light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden. And it is he who walks among us. So that, and he's where the light comes from. We reflect his light, his glory. And that's what Christianity is, isn't it? We're, it's not just a, a creed. It's not just a code of ethics. It's a relationship that he, uh, he glorifies himself through us. We pray through him, talk to him, trust in him. We're alive to him. He's the Savior who holds us in place. And... He knows something about us. He knows something about us. Look at verse 2. It says, I know your works, your toil and your, your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You cannot bear with those who are evil. Listen to me. Ephesus, in the beginning, was an intolerant church. They were intolerant. Now, it sounds like a bad thing today. In this context, that's a good thing. They were intolerant. That's such a, nobody wants to be thought of as intolerant today, you know? Uh, but listen, the intolerance of evil is a good thing. We must be intolerant of evil things, of wrong things. You know, our world is reframed and redefined. Everything used to be justice as it was properly defined, which is, you know, doing the right thing as opposed to the wrong thing. That's justice. It's not some social construct. It's, it's an attribute of God. It's the right thing over the wrong thing. And in recent years, we've changed that definition. But not only that, we've traded the value of justice, God's justice, for the value of toleration. And just like toleration was terrible for the church, toleration is not a good thing when it comes to evil. Uh, toleration basically says there is no wrong to each his own. 
Every man does what is right in his own eyes. That didn't work out well in the book of Judges, did it? And so we need to be, when it comes to evil, we need to be intolerant. We need to be intolerant, and that's what Ephesus was. This church, Ephesus, recognizes who the bad guys are. That's a lost art. We don't, we've lost track of who the bad guys are. It's very muddled right now. Remember when Disney used to make movies where these are the good guys, these are the bad guys? And now they make movies where the star of the show is a bad guy. You know, it's, you, could, you got movies about Cruella DeVille and Maleficent and all that stuff. It's just kind of a weird time in our culture. But there, there, this was a church that understood who the bad guys were. There were people who, who called themselves apostles, and this church knew they were wolves in sheep's clothing. And they recognized it, and they held them to the standard of the Bible. It goes on, it says that you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not they call themselves apostles. They're not. And you found them to be false. See, they've te- they did testing. They were like uh, the Bereans in the New Testament that searched the word of God. They searched the scriptures uh, to see what is true. How do you know when something is false? How does the secret service identify counterfeit bills? Do, do they, do they uh, put counterfeit bills in front of them and make them study the counterfeits? No, they study the genuine article. They know what the real deal looks like, and they're so familiar with it that when they see a counterfeit come across their line of sight, they know immediately this is wrong. This is, this is not the real thing. It's a fraud. And so if you know the Word of God and you spend time studying the Word of God, you're going to recognize false teachers and false teaching when you see it. And that's what Ephesus did. And they were good at it. And this wasn't witch hunting This wasn't just kind of selecting a target of the week to gripe about and to make a big deal about. No, this was not fault-finding for the sake of it. This was a love for true, sound teaching. And so we are to have this. And this is part of their commendation. And so when we read these letters, we're looking for a commendation. This is Christ's commendation in your notes. It's that their doctrine was sound. They had sound doctrine. Because they knew the word of God. They were grounded. They were on sure footing. It says in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. (laughs) For many false prophets have gone out into the world. There is not nearly enough testing in churches today. There are not enough Christians who test things by the word of God. A lot of us just, we're consumers if it's got Jesus' name on it, we just gobble it up. You know, we, we listen to this podcast and this radio show and we watch this guy on YouTube or we go to that church and we like the way this guy talks. He's got a demeanor about him that just resonates with us. He speaks our language. Are you testing what's said? You need to be testing. Test the spirits to see if they're from God. You, you need to ask some questions. I don't care who you're listening to. You know what? I was in uh, the gym there. I was getting some food, and somebody, somebody hollered at me. You're probably in here. This lady said to me, you know what? You missed an important point on that message last week, last Wednesday night. I said, I did. And she said, yeah. And she, she mentioned something that was at the end of the text that she thought was very important. I said, you know what? That's a great point. Absolutely. I love it. You want to call me out with scripture? I welcome it. That makes me smile. Now, if you call me out and you're just sharing your own opinion, I'm like, okay, well, show me where it says that in the word of God. 
I'm going to hold you to the same standard you're going to hold me to, okay? I love it when people read the Bible and that's their barometer for truth. You better ask some questions, no matter who you're listening to, what you're listening to. You better ask, you know, are, are, does this person, does this ministry believe in the inspired, inerrant word of God? They better. Are you asking the question, does this ministry or person present truth as coming from anywhere other than the word of God? In other words, is God, is God communicating through them? Is that, the, is that the, uh, the claim? Or are they getting their truth from God's word? Folks, I could stand up here and I could tell you, God told me, God told me, God told me. How would you know if I'm telling the truth? You gotta be in the word of God. There's no authority here. It's all in his book, okay? And so it's real easy to get on the bandwagon when somebody's saying, I have a word. You know, well, we're looking for a word. I need a word. I need a fresh word. It's sitting in front of you. It's called the scriptures. You want to hear a word from God? Open your Bible. You want to hear an audible word from God? Read it out loud. <laughs> all right? Now, do we have a spirit in us that guides us? that prompts us, that directs us? Yes, yes we do. But how do you know what you're hearing in the Spirit is of God? You test it, you test it. You're not gonna hear anything that's antithetical to the Word of God. I promise you that. And you better ask questions like, you know, what do they believe? Does this ministry or person that I'm listening to, they believe in the Holy Spirit as a member of the deity? They believe in the Trinity. Do they, do they believe in the deity of Christ? Do they believe in the atonement? Do they promote salvation uh, by works? They better not, right? Uh, you know, do they believe that the Lord is returning? There's not that many hills worth dying on, but there are some. And so these are important questions. But we have a simple faith. And they had a sound doctrine. Not only that, he commended in your notes, that their morality was strong. They had strong morals. I want you to skip down to verse 6. Here's what he says. He says, uh, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He says, you know, there were things Jesus hated. He hated false doctrine. And there was a group called the Nicolaitans. You know, they, bear with me here, but this group was, they were a Gnostic group. Gnosticism was the first major heresy of the church age. Uh, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And uh, the idea was that they knew what nobody else knew. You know, they, they had a secret knowledge. There was something higher. You know, what those apostles gave us, that's, that's not enough. I want more. There's something more. And only they knew it. They had the secret knowledge. And here's what they taught. They believed that anything spiritual, God, uh, the Holy Spirit, the angels, heaven, that was good. Anything physical, earthly, was all evil completely corrupt and they reasoned that since only spiritual things are good it really doesn't matter what we do with our physical frame with our physicality with with earthly things we can do whatever you want so it doesn't matter you can't you can't redeem anything on the earth so just sin all you want and just think on spiritual things and you'll be okay sleep with a thousand people you know, eat whatever you want to the point of gluttony. Uh, you know, do you know, drink as much as you want to, to total uh, drunkenness. It doesn't matter. Just indulge and then think spiritual thoughts, and you're fine. That was Gnosticism, and so uh, they they eschewed that at Ephesus. They called that out, 
And so they had strong moral fiber. And he said, I commend you that you take doctrine seriously and morality seriously. And we need to do that today. Can we learn from that example today? The church ought to hold up strong doctrine. People go to church for all kinds of reasons. You need to go because of what they teach. You don't just go because you like the worship. You don't just go because they have a meal before the service. You go because they teach the word of God and it's sound. And then you go because they take a stance on the right things, moral things. They're not afraid. They don't shy away from moral issues. And this church has done that. They've done it for 40 years. He says in verse 3, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. They've stuck with it, man. They stick with the stuff. Paul founded this church in the late 50s AD. By the time of this writing, we're, we're, we're now past 90 AD, 40 years. So like two generations have gone through there since its founding. A lot can happen in 40 years, though. One of my heroes is John Walvoord. Uh, John Walvoord, great theologian, uh, writer, author. Uh, he was president of, of Dallas Theological Seminary. And he said, only, uh, he said that seminaries, good seminaries, only last about 40 years. Because the, the ones who founded it, there are principles that they would die for. And then they eventually do die. And then there's another generation. There's a younger generation. Now, there might be one generation that has appreciation for those principles, but they wouldn't necessarily die for them. But eventually, you're going to get to a generation that they don't agree with those principles at all. And so it's going to change. Does that happen in churches too? It absolutely does. And so we need to be asking, once we're gone, who's going to take over? Does that generation believe like we believe? What kind of legacy are we leaving here? Uh, who's going to be willing to take a stand? Who's going to be the Joshua when Moses dies? And we need to think about that, you know? And so, so far, they've, they've done a good job. They've stood their ground. But verse 4, Houston, we have a problem. There's a rebuke. We got accommodation now. We got... A rebuke. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you. Dun, dun, dun. Okay? That you have abandoned the love you had at first. You abandoned the love you had at first. Abandon is an active verb. Uh, they, they were turning away from something. What was it? Well, I, so far, I don't think it's doctrine. So far, I don't think it's morality. Those are in jeopardy, however, because he takes a very serious tone here. They're letting go of something. What is it? They've left their first love. What is our first love? What, what is the very first thing that we embrace as Christians? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. So in your notes, they lost the wonder of grace. They lost the wonder. It had become passe. It had become old hat. You know, that's the first love. If you don't know grace, the rest of that stuff, doctrine, morality, all that, that's not worthy of any commendation from Christ. So they had grace, they embraced it, and that gave credence to their theology and to their morality, but they were now becoming dry. They were now becoming uh, uh, bored with grace. Grace was beginning to lose its charm. 
Can Christians get to that place where they get so accustomed to his grace we just kind of mellow out about it? We're not as on fire. The things that matter to God don't matter so much to us. There's not an intensity there. There's not a passion there. There's not an intimacy with Christ there. The things that touch his heart don't touch our heart so much. The sight of people coming to faith in Christ doesn't fire us up like it once did. Has that ever happened? I've watched churches and, and denominations slide culturally. I've seen churches embrace, you know, uh, same-sex marriages where in their inception they did not. I've seen stuff like that. And I I used to think poor theology led to that. I mean, that makes sense. I've said it. I've probably said it from a platform. You know, your belief determines your behavior. And I still believe that to an extent. But when you're talking about a wholesale shift in the spiritual health and impact of a church... I don't think that's exactly how it works, that that your doctrine informs your practical application so much. I think the sequence is a little different. I heard a, a church historian named John Hanna describe it this way. He said, you know, you see seminaries and denominations and churches, they rise up, they're great, people die, next generation comes along, they make concessions, uh, God's hand comes off of that ministry. And he said, people, people think that the seminary, the church, the denomination, the culture, they think that, that they abandon revealed truth first. They think that they, they fudge on doctrine, and then they fudge on morality, and then they shut down. He said, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. He said, historically, here's what happens. The church flourishes in the gospel. They major in grace. And then... As time wears on, they keep holding to sound theology. They still believe in all the right stuff. You can find these churches, man. Their their doctoral statement is solid. They're like, yeah, we believe in Jesus. He's God, born of a virgin, you know, suffered on the cross as a substitutionary atonement, uh, physically died, buried, rose the third day in accordance with the scripture, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, Holy Spirit lives in it, all that. They nail that stuff, but they can't cry anymore. They become numb. It's all up here. And there's just no heartbeat anymore. And they stop being a church and they just become a ministry. They just become an organization. They just become a 501c3. And then what happens is the world challenges them on morality and instead of standing strong because of the love of God and the transformation that comes through that, they begin to compromise. And they compromise on homosexuality, and they compromise on divorce, and they compromise on cohabitation, living together out of wedlock. They compromise on believers marrying unbelievers, and they compromise on ethics in business practices. And there's a lack of moral courage because the grace of God, that fire has dimmed in their hearts. So instead of standing, they concede. And then after they've made a moral compromise... Then they get called out on that, and what they do is they go back to their theology and they change the Bible. 
and they altered doctrine to match their morality. Okay? So you see the sequence here? On the, on the screen here, I, I just laid this out for you. Sequence of a church's downfall. The gospel becomes dull and routine. And as a result, then morality becomes compromised. And then doctrine gets twisted to affirm what we're advocating. It's a sneaky little sequence. The devil's good. I mean, he's bad, but he's good at being bad. So it's not like you would think it would go. So you've left your first love, Ephesus. You're getting dry when it comes to grace. And so we're, to re- we're not to be childish, but we are to be childlike. There's a wonder that we've got to retain when it comes to the grace of God because it makes all the difference. You know, don't you love new Christians? You ever spend any time around new Christians? They're different, okay? They, they haven't grown up in church. A new believer is on fire. Have you noticed that? New believers are just a force of nature. I used to work with young adults, and uh, at our last church out in California, there was a young guy. He did not grow up in church, and he shows up one day. I don't know how he heard about it or what, but he started coming to our young adults group. He got saved. I baptized him, and he just caught fire, man. I mean, he never missed a service. He was there every time the doors were open. He just was soaking up all he could. He was reading. I could not stock him with enough books. He'd be like, what, Pastor Scott, what else you got? I'd be like, well, read the Gospel of John. He goes, I read it last night. What else you got? You know, I'd give him commentaries. He'd consume them. You know, he'd come back and hand them back, and they're all bent up and stuff. And I, I was doing the best. But he was on fire. He comes in one Wednesday midweek service, young adults, and he's humming this song. And I said, what is that? And he goes, oh, it's his new song. I just learned it. And I, they, they did it on Sunday at church. And I go, oh, wait, 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 which one? And he goes, well, I'm not a very good singer, and I don't remember the lyrics. Here, I'll find them on my phone. And he pulls up the lyrics. Here's the lyrics. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. That's how great thou art. A new song. Written in 1885. (laughs) But he wasn't sick of it, you know. This wasn't an old boring song to him. This was, he was obsessed with it because he was obsessed with truth. And there was truth in those lyrics and the grace of God. And uh, he was, it was like he was a guy in love for the first time. And this is something we got to watch. We got to watch losing our first love because uh, nature ends up devouring our passion for the grace of God. Can marriages get cold? They can. Can child raising get tedious? It can. Can your job get laborious? Yeah. Even when you were excited about it at first, you know? Uh, can citizens, uh, citizenry and, and, and patriotism, can that get kind of jingoistic and passe in our minds and hearts sometimes? Sometimes it can. Uh, you know, but we, we can't forget what it was that drew us to those things in the first place. We got to remember that. Remember this person from the Bible? They said this. They said something along these lines. Lord, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to do all the serving by myself. Lord, tell her to get up and help me. 
What did Jesus say? Oh, Martha. Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing, just one thing is important. You and me. It's our relationship. That's where grace goes. It's when, it's when your ministry takes the place of your relationship. That's when, that's when you lose your first love. Remember this guy from Scripture? How about this line? Oh, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Thank you that I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a swindler. I'm not an idolater. I'm not like this tax collector over here. You know, that's godliness, isn't it? It's like, have you read my new book, Humility and how I achieved it, you know. <laughs> Who, which of those guys, the, this Pharisee or that tax collector, which one was justified according to Christ? It was the one who beat his chest, his breast, and, and he, he, he couldn't even lift his eyes. And he said, be merciful to me, the sinner. See, he understood that he was in need of redemption, and we can't lose that. We gotta remember we got to remember, okay, Israel has Passover every year. Why? Because they say we will never forget that we were once in bondage. We will never forget that we were delivered. They celebrate Feast of Tabernacles every year. Why? We will never forget that we wandered in the wilderness and that God provided for us and we lived in those little shacks in the wilderness. We'll never forget that. Folks, there are things that we must never forget. We must never forget our deliverance. I remember years back, my dad pastored in South Dakota, where I grew up, small church, about 200 people, and uh, one day he read in a Christian publication, he read an article about a well-known evangelist. This guy uh, was, was uh, well, he was kind of a household name in, in homes like ours, in pastor's homes, back in the 70s. Uh, this guy was on a lot of talk shows in the 70s. This evangelist, he debated uh, a prominent atheist. He was on Donahue. Remember Donahue? You might remember that? Yeah, that guy was a piece of work. Anyway, this guy was, was, was a popular evangelist, and his career kind of faded over time. And so this article was about him, and my dad was like, yeah, I wonder what happened to that guy. And the article said that he was looking for uh, churches to speak at in parts of the country that he'd never been, including the Dakotas. And so my dad was like, hey, maybe he'd come here. So he contacted his people and uh, booked, booked a, a date for him to come up and speak at our church. He was going to be there for a whole week, like a revival service or something like that. We booked him a flight, booked him a hotel, booked him a rental car. And the guy landed, went to the airport to pick him up. And he was the biggest diva, this guy. I mean, he wouldn't say two words. Very, you know, kept himself, had an air about him. We took him to get his rental car. He complained about the size of the car and all this. Took him to dinner. He was rude to the waitress. Checked him in at the hotel. He was very demanding. Yeah, I need this, I need this, I need this. And at the desk, they were like, oh, yes, sir, absolutely. And he was like, yeah, make it snappy and all this stuff. The next morning was Sunday. He was supposed to be at the church at a certain time, he was going to speak to our congregation. And my dad, you know, he was, he's there, pastor of the church. He's looking at his watch. He's, he doesn't see the guy. Our, our church was a very cheerful place. Everybody was very friendly and milled around and liked to fellowship and all this stuff. And dad's like, where's our speaker? Has anybody seen our speaker? One of the deacons said, well, there, there's a guy in the parking lot. He's just been sitting in his car for like the last 40 minutes. 
And so my dad looked out there and he, he saw him and he went out there. Sure enough, here's this guy. He's sitting in his car, engine's running, windows up. He's just sitting there with his hands folded. He's got sunglasses on. And he's just waiting until it's his time and he will then stroll in there, do his thing and all that. And my dad, you have to know my dad. Uh, he, uh, he's got a little bark to him, you know? I mean, he's a sweet guy, but he's got a line. And if you cross that line, you'll know it. And, uh, you know, we Grimms are not very tall, but uh, if you tick us off, you, you'll figure it out pretty quick. And so this guy is sitting there, and my dad knocks on the window. Well, guy rolls down the window. My dad leans in, puts his arms on the door. That's male speak for you about to get whooped, all right? <laughs> and he said, uh, I want you to get your tail out of this car and in that church, and you engage with people right now. I don't know who you think you are, but around here you are not a rock star, you are not a celebrity, you are our guest. And if you don't go in there and act like a normal human being who loves Jesus, I'm gonna kick you out of this parking lot so fast, you will never come back. And if anybody ever asked me, I'm gonna tell them why. And he got out of the car. And he straightened up, and he went in there, and he turned on the charm, and he engaged with people, and he got up there, and he spoke, and it, everything. And if you were just a lay person, you would never have known anything different, okay? And my point here is, in our interaction with that guy over the course of that week, for what we saw, my family on the inside, is that this guy had lost something. He had lost his first love. He had lost uh, an appreciation a reverence, the wonder about what it meant to be a child of God and to be around other children of God. And he'd become a prima donna. And he kept himself, and he was, just, he was just in it for himself. And he didn't care about other people. He was just there to do a job, and he'd rationalized it in his mind because doctrinally he was there. Morally, I guess, he was there, but it had become a job to him just a gig. And my father, even though he was a little uh, barky about it, he was willing to treat this guy like a heretic because in a practical sense, he had left the faith because of his attitude. Because if a Christian has all of his doctrine right, all of his morality right, but there's no understanding, no appreciation, no indwelling uh, spirit and heart with the love of God that, that pervades, then you're, you're just a blight on the church. And so Christ says in verse five, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so here's the warning for this church you got to reclaim, in your notes, you got to reclaim the wonder or lose your effectiveness. You're going to lose your effectiveness. I will take your lamp stand. My light will not shine through you. I'm going to shut you down ministerially. I'm going to make you like, a, like those churches in, in Europe. You're going to be a museum piece. You're not going to be 
powerful for the cause of Christ. You're going to be something that, that you never intended to be. You might have your doctrine right. You might have your morality right. But my love, man, what did Paul say? Without love, I'm a, I'm a clanging cymbal. I'm just a noisy gong. And that's what happened to the first century church that this church represents. It had waned in its joy and its appreciation, its, its, its first love. And it's going to be the next season that's going to restore it all because Smyrna is the persecuted church, you know? And after that first century, there would come persecution. And that would be the salvation of the church because persecution is what rekindles the faith. Churches thrive when they're persecuted. It's when they're tolerated, they die. So when they're tolerated, they die. Nothing like a good beheading to rekindle your faith. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen, we're going to look at seven letters here. Every letter is going to have this in its its wind-up, okay, in its wind-down, rather. It's going to say something like this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, okay? So what is that talking about? Let him hear. He who has an ear. Well, first of all, we're not just talking to the pastor, are we? We're talking to he who has an ear. Anyone who has an ear. So this is to all who have ears to hear. Meaning what? Well, what are they hearing? They're hearing what the Spirit is saying. Who is it that can hear the Spirit? Do lost people hear the Spirit? No, they do not. Who hears the Spirit? The regenerate, the born again, the redeemed, believers, okay? So those who have ears to hear means the true believers, the authentically saved, not just those who identify with the church in name only, but they don't know Christ. These are the true believers. And so there's going to be an invitation and a promise for this church. And it's like uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So Christ is talking about authentic believers here. And even by this time, in, in John's day, there was a delineation. There were, there were the real deals and there were the fakers. And it's still that way today. It's still that way today. And Christ predicted it. You remember we looked at that parable of the wheat and the tares? You've got frauds among the genuine articles. And so what this tells us is that there is an intent on the part of Christ for the authority in the church, the power in the church, the leadership in the church to be in the hands of the right People, not the frauds, not the narcissists, not those who are operating out of a self-interest. You gotta have people who are in touch with the, their first love. People who understand grace. People who see people through the eyes of Jesus Christ because they know themselves that they have been forgiven much. And they wanna show that love to them. And this also means, he who has ears to hear, it also means that this letter may be addressed to a specific church, Ephesus, but the Lord knows that more believers are going to populate this earth, and so he knows this will be transcribed by John, and future generations are going to read it. So this is, he's talking to you and me right here. And here's what he says. Here, here's the promise, okay? He says, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. Now this is interesting because I already read the verse about the Nicolaitans. I kind of skipped ahead, you know, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans, that comes, they must have had a leader named Nicolae, probably Nicholas, honestly. The root of that word in Nicolaitans 
That Greek word is the word that means conquer. Nikao. Nikao. You see what, see what kind of shoes I have on here? Nike. If you're wearing Nikes, that name Nike comes from this Greek word. It means conqueror. It means overcomer. That's what it means. So he says, you know, uh, you, 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 you shun the doctrine of the pseudo-conquerors, the Nicolaitans, and it's like he's segueing into this point here. He's saying, let me show you what real conquerors look like. Let me show you who wears the Nikes for real. He says, uh, you're going to conquer. The one who conquers. Now, it's not saying that if you do this, you go to heaven. To conquer doesn't mean that you have eternal life. Okay? You do have eternal life, but that's not what this means. This is a way that you can tell who the real believer is. The one who conquers. He will conquer. He will overcome. What does it mean to conquer, to overcome? It doesn't mean that you bring in the kingdom. It doesn't mean that you win every single person on earth to Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that your church is going to have 100,000 members. Okay? That'd be nice. But the one who conquers, who is the one who conquers? 1 John 5, 4 sheds light on this. It says, for everyone who has been born of God. Anybody who's been born of God in here today? Are you born again? Everyone who's been born of God, what? Overcomes the world. Same word. Nikao. You're a conqueror. If you are born again, you are a conqueror. Okay? And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our works? Our faith. Our faith. And so in your notes, all true believers will overcome. All true believers will overcome. You say, well, I don't feel like I overcome. I feel like I struggle. That's part of it. That's part of it. You struggle. You should struggle every day. You know what you shouldn't do? Sin. It's okay to struggle. You just struggle. You don't give in. Struggle. To struggle is all right. But you struggle with Jesus at your side. And you keep struggling. And you die to self every day. And you say, it's such a struggle. The struggle is the glory. Christianity is not something I did when I was a kid. And now I'm good and I'm coasting until the rapture. No. It's a lifelong commitment. God doesn't ask us to be successful in earthly ways. Uh, I think of Stephen. Was Stephen successful? Not by the world standards. He, he got pelted with rocks until he died. Right? But was he a success in God's eyes? What did Stephen see when, right before he died? The scripture says that he gazed. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen took a stand for Christ. It was a struggle, but he took a stand and Jesus stood up for him. Faithfulness. That's what overcoming is. It means you are faithful every day. You remain faithful. You're going to have you're going to have failures. You're going to have failures. Doesn't mean you lose your salvation. You're still an overcomer. But you keep forging ahead because the true overcomer is not someone who gives up, who quits. You keep you keep going. Because it's not on your power. You're relying on Christ. And you, you die well every day. You die to self every day. 
all the way to the end. And then he closes this out. He says, I will grant to the overcomer, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so our last little thought here in your notes is that an eternal perspective fuels our earthly performance. In other words, keep your eyes on the prize and live like it's already won because it is. It is. See, what's the promise that we have? We have fellowship and glory with Christ forever. Paradise of God is the phrase here. In Genesis 1 and 2, what is the paradise of God on earth? Eden. In fact, I'm going to start a series, not this Sunday, next Sunday. I'm starting a series on Sunday in Genesis. And so I'm going to (laughs) be, I don't know if this is boldness or stupidity. I'm going to be in Genesis and Revelation every week for the next seven weeks. Beginnings and endings, all right? But in Genesis, Eden is the paradise of God on earth. In Revelation 2, for the overcomer, the true believer, the faithful believer, we have a promise of paradise in heaven that awaits, and it's not transactional. It's not if you do this, you'll get that. It's you are mine by faith. You have this. It awaits you And you remember that, that is your promise, and that ought to guide you, fuel your journey on this earth. You can endure the struggle because you have this promise. As Christians, we get the doldrums and we forget who we are. And we forget what awaits us. Kind of like the story of Peter that I told on Sunday. There's Jesus right in front of him. He's walking on the water toward Christ, got his eyes on Jesus That's his salvation right there, going to keep him up. But he diverts, he gets distracted, he looks at the wind, looks at the waves, begins to sink, Christ pulls him out. Because he's he's got a promise, he holds a promise for Peter. I'm not going to let you sink. You and I have a promise. We start to look about, we start to get, you know, in the mire of life, and we start to sink, but we still have a promise. We've got to remember what awaits us in glory, don't get distracted, don't get weary, don't get bored. Live now as one who is a citizen of a glorious city. You are a citizen there, and you're a sojourner here. You're a member of a victorious army, and you are not to live as one who is defeated. Amen? Amen. Closing verse here, Colossians 3, to set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. You keep focused on eternal things. Eternal things. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't you get all preoccupied with with crummy people who are going to weigh you down, who want to bum you out, who want to criticize you, who want to lie about you. Don't believe that. You believe what God says about you and what he has already done for you. Amen? Amen. I'm looking forward to these last six letters. Let's bow, let's pray, and ask God's blessing on you guys. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this group. What a, what a wonderful bunch to gather with on a Wednesday night, open the good book, and hear from you. We pray your blessing upon them. May they go in peace and the knowledge and not forget their first love. In Jesus' name, amen.